Namo myoho renge kyo, namo myoho renge kyo, namo myoho renge kyo. Hello, friends. How are you? I hope you're in good health and secure. Thank you for your support. Like and subscribe. It's a bodhisattva act. It helps bring this resource to more people. Um, yeah, you may hear uh, some noises in the background. That's a heater fan. And I can't believe living here in the South that uh, I think it's tomorrow is supposed to reach a high of 25 degrees Fahrenheit. <laughs> with a low of eight. <laughs> just, I don't know. I'm always surprised at how cold it can get here in Mississippi. And I suppose weather doing what it's doing, climate, blah, blah, blah. It's only going to get colder. So <laughs> I left Montreal, Canada, only to find cold elsewhere. <laughs> All right. Uh, Devadatta, chapter 12. We begin today. Ah, Devadatta, good old Devadatta. Oh, man. He tried to kill Shakyamuni several times. Disturbed the, 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 the whole uh, mon monastic assemblies. Tried to get him to revolt. Ah, Shakyamuni's old. I should run things. <laughs> Sounds like an episode of, an episode of uh, Dallas or... I don't know, name a soap opera, right? Unbelievable. So, human beings haven't changed all that much. All right. At that time, the Buddha declared to the bodhisattvas and to the fourfold assembly of gods and men, in time past, throughout incalculable kalpas, I sought the scripture of the Dharma Blossom. Right, his arduous journey depending on the reports you read, either seven years or 12 years. There's a, there's a lot of um, assembled facts, but they're always marinated in, in um, some conjecture and some postulations, and it's hard to know exactly. Again, Buddhism was spread by word of mouth, right? By memorization, uh, certain monks were very gifted at memorization. Um, and so they took onus. They took responsibility for either just one sermon or several sermons. And they were the go-to authority if somebody wanted to hear that teaching while uh, Shakyamuni was either not there or uh, after his demise, after he passed away, yeah. So that's how the word was spread for a long, long time, hundreds of years, until some usually wealthy uh, uh, persons wanting to make sure that the teachings would not be lost would have a scribe, somebody they hired, uh, to translate. People who were expert at this in different languages, right? And this is how today we arrive at the, these documents that are now translated again for English, French, German, whatever. So he's saying that as he was searching for the ultimate truth, which was the goal of Siddhartha Gautama, remember, and, and this gets forgotten a lot, certainly by these early Buddhists that he's teaching, right? These uh, arhats, uh, sarvakas, pratyekabuddhas, 
they seem to have all forgotten that the purpose of Buddhism was that all living beings have a, a wonderful life, this life, be enlightened in this life so they don't have to be completely schmalled, <laughs> invent the word here, flummoxed by samsara. I mean, that was the whole purpose. That's what he was searching for. So he's saying right here, in time past, throughout incalculable kalpas, a long time I sought the Myohorengekyo, the scripture of the Dharma Blossom. Right? The, the Dharma Blossom being the white lotus, or the lotus. Because it seeds at the exact same moment as it blossoms. In this life. And yet, all of these schools have taken it upon themselves to project Buddhahood as something far away in some afterlife or a life after the afterlife. No afterlife, but this long period of rep repetitive life. And at some point, what? He never taught that. He never taught that. Now, I'll get some of people who will disagree with me because they'll find some obscure writing where that's explicitly written, but it wasn't Shakyamuni who said that. How, why would he? That was not his goal. But as I sought the scripture of the Dharma Blossom throughout many kalpas, being neither negligent nor impatient, now that, he would have said, if it's going to come, if I'm going to find the true truth, the real real, I can't get impatient. I have to simply find it, right? I was ever king of a realm, uh, and as king, I vowed to seek unexcelled bodhi. My thought never receded. My thought never receded. I didn't settle for anything less. Wishing to fulfill the six paramitas, I strove to confer gifts in my mind, never begrudging elephants, horses, or the seven jewels, nor realms or walled cities, nor wife and children, slaves and servants, nor head, eyes, marrow, trunk and flesh, arms and legs, not begrudging bodily life itself, not begrudging bodily life itself. Why can't I reach enlightenment? Because I'm in this body. What does the Arhat say? I'm in my last body. Is that not a grudge against the body? It's so obvious. The stubbornness of old beliefs dragged along for thousands of years, shoehorned into Buddhism. What is it going to take to get these people to change their minds? So, when Nichiren talks about Shakubuku, that's what he's talking about. Right? We hear all of this stuff about being calm and, and so on and so forth. And this is what the early schools of Buddhism all thought was the accomplishment of enlightenment, was to be soft-spoken and just talk and repeat and repeat and repeat, and eventually people will get it. That's what was considered shoju. Now, I've used the word shoju, but that's not how I mean it. And that's, I don't believe, 
how it should be interpreted for our modern practice. But when you hear Nietzsche speak about it, he's talking about this modern era. And he's saying that shows you that calm, zen, theravada, hinayana, all those teachings that, oh, he's a true master because he never raises his voice. He says that's not, that doesn't work. Not in this era. This era is full of noise, full of all kinds of politic and propaganda and distraction. And it's loud and it's visual and it's constant. And if you're soft-spoken now, nobody's going to hear you. Nobody's going to listen or take you seriously. In this era, in this age of Mapo, this era, you need to get passionate. You need to see, visually see and be heard with your conviction so that others will go, okay, yeah, there must be something here. Because people are not easily pulled away from their distractions. House. This is the whole deal with expedient means, skillful devices. I skipped a few frames and move into my sorry about that. Okay. I strove to confer gifts in my mind, never begrudging elephants, and he brings up elephants for a specific reason. You'll find out why. At that time, the people of the age had incalculable length of life. In other words, life was easy. No, you could say in India, life was never easy, but it's a relative statement. You herded animals. You grew basically an agrarian society. You, know? you grew rice. You grew vegetables. You, grew, you were a farmer. Not an easy life, but by today's standards... You knew what you were going to do every day. If you were the son or daughter in that family, you knew what your life was going to look like. You just set about doing it. Hmm? For Dharma's sake, I abandoned realm and title, leaving the government to my heir. And to the beat of a drum, I announced to the four quarters that I was seeking Dharma. Whoever can preach the great vehicle to me for him I will render service and run errands for the rest of my life. He dedicated his entire life to the pursuit of this singular truth. And in that pursuit, he met many Dharma uh, teachers, Brahmins, all sorts. Went through years and years of ascetic practices and self mona he, he, he almost starved himself to death in one, in one case that's well documented. But we know if you had a true picture of what Shakyamuni, well, he wasn't Shakyamuni yet, what Siddhartha looked like during those years, it wouldn't be this fat, jolly Buddha. You could see his ribs, each and every one. Seriously, he almost starved himself to death. He took every practice to its nth degree. That was his determination to find the truth, yeah? 
At that time, there was a seer who came and reported to the king, saying, I have a great vehicle. Its name is the scripture of the lotus blossom of the fine dharma. If you can obey me, I will set it forth for you. Now, this is obviously a parable of sorts and a, a story. Because it wasn't somebody who walked along the path and saw him in the woods and said, hey, dude, you looking for this? No. He's talking about his mental cognitions, his, his aspirations and his insights. Right? So this is a particular insight. When the king heard the seer's words, he danced for joy, then straightway followed the seer, tending to do whatever he required, picking his fruit, drawing his water, gathering his firewood, preparing his food, even making a couch of his own body. Feeling no impatience, whether in body or in mind, he rendered him service for a thousand years, bend, bending all efforts to menial labor for Dharma's sake and seeing to it that he lacked nothing. He gave everything he had to find this, learn this truth. At that time, the world honored one wishing to restate this meaning proclaimed Gatha saying, I recall past kalpas long ago when in quest for a great dharma, though I was lord of the realm for the age, right? He was the prince, the son of a, a very mighty landowner, wealthy and a warring clan, very powerful in India. I did not crave the pleasures of the five desires, the skandhas, yeah? I beat a drum declaring to the four quarters whosoever is in possession of the great dharma, if, I can ex if he can explain it to me in person, I will be his slave. At this time there was a seer, Rishi, a seer who came and reported to the great king, I have a fine and subtle dharma, rarely to be had in the world. If you can practice it, then I will preach it to you. At that time, the king, hearing the seer's words, at heart was overjoyed. Then, straight away, following the seer, he rendered him whatever service he required, gathering his firewood, fruits, melons, presenting them to him respectfully at the appropriate times because... My heart cherished the fine dharma. My body and mind knew neither sloth nor impatience. For the living beings' sakes, universally, I strove in quest of great dharma, neither for myself nor for the pleasures of the five desires. Thus, I became the lord of a great realm, strove to gain and keep this dharma, contrived at length to achieve Buddhahood, and now expressly preach it to you. The Buddha declared this to the bhikshus and bhikshunis. The king at that time was myself. The seer was he who is at present Devadatta. Really? It is thanks to my good friend Devadatta that I have been able to perfect the six paramitas, tenderness, compassion, sympathetic joy, and indifference to self, the 32 marks and the eight 80 beautiful features, the color of polished red gold, the 10 strengths, the four kinds of fearlessness, the four inclusive dharmas, the 18 kinds of uniqueness, 
the power of the way of the supernatural penetrations. Now, this had to come as a shock to the assembly because everybody knew David Dada had, for a long time, competed against. He was a great student, very knowledgeable, but he also did everything he could to get rid of Shakyamuni and take his place. So what is Shakyamuni talking about? The achievement of under-differentiating right enlightened intuition and the broad conveyance of living beings to salvation I owe to my good friend Devadatta. Hmm, this is an interesting play on our, our thoughts, isn't it? I declare to this, I declare this to the fourfold assembly. Hereafter, Devadatta, following the passage of incalculable kalpas, shall contrive to achieve Buddhahood. What? And shall be called God King Devaraja, the thus come one worthy of offerings of right, universal knowledge, so on and so forth, right? Conduct perfect, well gone, understanding the world, you know all the epithets. And his world sphere shall be named Highway of the Gods. Stairway to Heaven. I couldn't resist, sorry. <laughs> it says Stairway to the Gods, but... At that time, the Buddha, God King, shall dwell in the world 20 intermediate kalpas, broadly preaching the fine dharma to the living beings, beings equal in number to the Ganges' sand, shall gain the fruit of the Arahant. Yeah, but that's not Bodhisattva. Arahant is a, a fake nirvana, right? He's already made that clear. So is he backing up? What's going on here? Incalculable living beings shall display the mind of the perceiver of conditions. Beings equal in number to the Ganges' sands shall open up their thoughts to the unexcelled way and gaining acceptance of the doctrine of the unborn dwell where there is no backsliding. At that time, after the Parinirvana of the Buddha God King, his true Dharma shall abide in the world twenty intermediate kalpas and a stupa of the seven jewels shall be erected to house the sariya of his whole body, sixty yohanas in height, forty yohanas in length and breadth. So evidently, after attaining Arhat, they then expand their experience to but I wish it was more explicit though don't you gods and men with assorted flowers powdered incense burned incense perfumed paint clothing and necklaces banners and parasols so on and so forth and so forth offerings to that fine stupa of the seven jewels See, he's already taught the treasure tower, so now that's assumed knowledge. You know what the stupa of seven jewels is. Incalculable living beings shall gain the fruit of the arahant. Hmm. See, this is the semblance dharma, right? This is what Nichiren talks about, the shoju being the semblance dharma. It's not the right teaching for our age of shakubuku. In other words, having to break the backs, the misbeliefs, the, the disbeliefs, the improper beliefs of that fake nirvana. The Lotus Sutra goes beyond that, far beyond it. So what's going on in this chapter? Numberless beings shall have the enlightened intuition 
of the Pratyaka Buddha. There again. Not there yet. Living beings whose numbers shall be beyond reckoning and discussion shall open up their thoughts to Bodhi and reach the point from which there is no backsliding. So yeah, yeah, that's a, that's a level of Bodhisattva, but that's not the fully realized Bodhisattva, not the Buddha way of the Lotus Sutra. So I don't know about you, but I'm so far a bit confused, as I'm sure everyone in the assembly was. The Buddha declared this to the Bhishus. In ages yet to come, if there's a good man or good woman who, hearing the Devadatta chapter of the scripture of the blossom of the fine Dharma, with a pure heart, believes and reveres it, evinces no doubts or uncertainties, he shall not fall to the level of hell, hunger, ghosts, beasts, but shall be reborn in the presence of the Buddhas of all ten directions, constantly hearing this scripture wherever he may be born. If he is born, reborn among men or gods, he shall enjoy superior subtle pleasures. If he is in the presence of a Buddha, he shall be magically reborn in a lotus blossom. So far I'm reminded that uh, this Lotus Sutra is a collection of many sutras put under the rubric of the Lotus teachings, uh, the ultimate Mahayana collection of teachings, uh, and thereby assembled again by the great scholar Kumarajiva and translated into Chinese and other languages. Yeah. So is it possible that this chapter mm, is maybe a little tainted? Because it seems to be going backwards in terms of Arahant. We have already read in several chapters that the Arahant pursued a delusion of nirvana that was just the a whole parable dedicated to the apparitional city, right? The conjured city. That it is not the goal, but it was a goal meant to bring people to a point where they could rest up, adjust their minds, and then go on the way with the Lotus Sutra to achieve full bodhisattva buddhaness. Yes? So, a little confused. Let's go on. Maybe it corrects itself. At that time, in neither region, there was a bodhisattva in the train of many jewels, the world-honored one whose name was Wisdom Accumulation. He reported to the Buddha many jewels that he was about to return to his original land. Shakyamuni Buddha addressed Wisdom Accumulation, saying, Good man, wait a bit. There is here a bodhisattva named Manjushri, whom you would do well to meet, for he will preach the fine dharma to you, and then you may return to your original land. Where did Devadatta go? Now we're talking about Manjushri and this other. At that time, Manjushri was seated on a lotus blossom with a thousand leaves, the size of a carriage wheel, and the bodhisattvas who had come with him were also seated on jeweled lotus blossoms, hmm. which were welling up of themselves out of the great sea, from the dragon palace of the Sagara, and resting in midair. Oh, all right, this is an elevated statue now. Thence 
He went to the Mount of the Numinous Eagle, or Vulture Peak, where, descending from the lotus blossom, he went into the Buddha's presence with head bowed, did obeisance before both feet of the world-honored one, and having attended to all courtesies, went before wisdom accumulation. There, having questioned him solicitously, he sat off to one side. The Bodhisattva wisdom accumulation asked Manjushri, You have been to the Dragon Palace. How great! is the number of the beings converted by you there. Manjushri said, the number is beyond dimension. It is incalculable, not a thing the mouth can proclaim, nor anything the mind can fathom. Just wait a bit, for you shall have proof yourself. Before his speech was finished, ah, Numberless bodhisattvas, seated on jeweled lotus blossoms, welled up out of the sea and went to the mount of the numinous eagle, Vulture Peak, where they rested in midair. Here we are back in the sky, right? These bodhisattvas had all been converted and conveyed to liberation by Manjushri, and all had perfected bodhisattva conduct, and all were discussing together the six paramitas. Those who had formerly been voice hearers, shravakas, were in midair preaching the conduct of the voice hearer. But now all were putting into practice the great vehicle's doctrine of emptiness. Manjushri spoke to wisdom accumulation, saying, Such is the manner of teaching and conversion within the sea. At that time, the Bodhisattva wisdom accumulation praised him with gatha, saying, O most excellently wise, most courageous and vigorous, you have converted and conveyed to liberation an incalculable multitude. Now this great assembly, and I myself, have all seen you, setting forth the doctrine of the true marks, laying open the dharma of the one vehicle, broadly guiding multitudinous living beings, and enabling them quickly to achieve bodhai, Buddhahood. Manjushri said, I have never preached in the sea's midst anything but the scripture of the blossom of the fine dharma. The Bodhisattva wisdom accumulation questioned Manjushri, saying, That scripture is very profound and subtle, a gem among the scriptures, a thing rarely to be found in the world. Are there any beings who, putting this scripture into practice by the strenuous application of vigor, speedily gain Buddhahood, or are there not? Manjushri said, There is the daughter of the dragon king, Sagara, whose years are barely eight. Remember the young girl who swiftly attained enlightenment? Her wisdom is sharp-rooted, and well she knows the faculties and deeds of the beings. She has gained Dharani, the profound treasure house of secrets preached by the Buddhas, she is able to accept and to keep in its entirety. She has profoundly entered into dhyana, concentration, and has arrived at an understanding of the dharmas in the space of a ksnana, a moment. Remember, we've talked about moments. Buddhism uh, reference, the, the first book, has extensive definitions of this moment. She produced bodhi thought, 
and has attained the point of non-backsliding. Her eloquence has no obstruction, and she is compassionately mindful of the beings as if they were her babies. Her merits are perfect. What she recollects in her mind and recites with her mouth is subtle and broad. She is of good will and compassionate, humane and yielding. Her will and her thought are harmonious and refined, and she is able to attain to bodhi, to Buddhahood. The Bodhisattva Wisdom Accumulation said, I have seen the thus come one of the Shakyas, right, Shakyamunis, throughout incalculable kalpas, tormenting himself by doing what is hard to do, piling up merit and heaping up excellence, seeking the path of the Bodhisattva and never resting. When I took, when I look at the thousand millionfold world, there is no place, not even the size of a mustard seed, where the Bodhisattva did not cast away body and life for the beings' sakes. And only then did he achieve the way of Bodhi. Right, the motivation for Shakyamuni, like he prescribes for Bodhisattvas, is this, the, the liberation of others, of all living beings. And never a concern for himself. That comes with the territory. If you're not working to assist others in their excellence, their path, right, to liberation, how can you possibly do so for yourself? Is the equation he sets out. I do not believe that this girl in the space of a moment directly and immediately achieved right and lightened intuition. Ooh, challenging Manjushri. He's saying, look, I don't care what you say. I've watched what Shakyamuni went through in order to discover this enlightenment. How does this little eight-year-old girl do it in a moment? What? Come on. Right? He's not buying it. Before he had finished speaking, at that very time, the daughter of the dragon king suddenly appeared in front of him and them, and doing obeisance with head bowed, stood off to one side and spoke praise with gathas, saying, this is the eight-year-old girl now, having profoundly mastered the marks of sin and merit, universally illuminating all ten directions, the subtle and pure dharma body has perfected the marks of 32, using the 80 beautiful features as a means of adorning the Dharma body, the object of respectful obeisance for gods and men, it is reverently honored by all dragons and spirits of all varieties of living beings. None fails to bow to it as an object of reverence. I have also heard that, as for the achievement of Bodhi, only the Buddha can know it by direct witness. I, laying open the teachings of the great vehicle, conveyed to release the suffering beings. At that time, Shariputra, remember, the leading arhat of the assembly, spoke to the dragon girl, saying, you say that in no long time you shall attain the unexcelled way. This is hard to believe. What is the reason? A woman's body is filthy. Remember what he said? It is not a dharma receptacle. How can you attain unexcelled bodhi? Well, she already has. Were you not paying attention? Again, I'm having trouble with this chapter. The path of the Buddha is remote and cavernous. 
throughout the incalculable kalpas by tormenting oneself and accumulating good conduct, also by thoroughly cultivating the perfections, only by these means can one then be successful. Also, a woman's body even then has five obstacles. It cannot become a first, a Brahma, a god-king, second, the god-sakra, third, king Mara, fourth, a sage-king turning the wheel, fifth, a Buddha body. I mean, you menstruate. Ew, right? How can the body of a woman speedily achieve Buddhahood? Well, this has already been answered. Curious, isn't it? At that time, the dragon girl had a precious gem whose value was the whole thousand million-fold world, which she held up and gave to the Buddha. The Buddha straightway accepted it. The dragon girl said to the Bodhisattva wisdom accumulation and to the venerable Shariputri, I offered a precious gem, and the world-honored one accepted it. Was this quick or not? How long did that take? He answered, saying, very quick, immediate. Yeah. The girl said, with your supernatural power, you shall see me achieve Buddhahood even more quickly than that. At that time, the assembled multitude all saw the dragon girl in the space of an instant turn into a man, perfect bodhisattva conduct, straightaway go southward to the world sphere spotless, sit on a jeweled lotus blossom, and achieving undifferentiating right enlightened intuition with 32 marks and 80 beautiful features setting forth the fine dharma for all living beings in all 10 directions. At that time, in the Saha world, sphere, bodhisattvas, voice hearers, gods, dragons of the Eightfold Assembly, humans and non-humans, all from a distance, seeing that the dragon girl achieved Buddhahood and universally preached Dharma to the men and gods of the assembly of that time, were overjoyed at heart, shocked, more like, and all did obeyance from afar. Incalculable living beings Hearing the Dharma and understanding it attained to non-backsliding. Incalculable living beings were enabled to receive a prophecy of the path. The spotless world, sphere, trembled in six different ways, and the Saha world, sphere, 3,000 living beings dwelt on the ground from which there was no backsliding. 3,000 living beings opened up the thought of Bodhi and were enabled to receive prophecies, the Bodhisattva wisdom accumulation, as well as Shariputra, and all the assembled multitude silently believed and accepted. This would be equatable with Nichiren's Shakubuku. Shariputra's mind of doubt and reviling was cracked, broken, Shakubuku. And he witnessed right before him, instantaneous, perfect, complete enlightenment. You know, and, and in deference to the misogyny of the day, even in this example, the dragon girl had to briefly instantiate as a man in order to get to Buddhahood. It's kind of insulting, but we have to take it for the time it was written, yeah? But and Nichiren would correct this himself and say, no, this... Women have just as much access as men do to enlightenment. 
everyone's path is slightly different, right? Sex does not matter. It's the one great lingering attachment that human beings have that they need to let go of because as far as the sentient mind, there's no genitalia. Sentient mind is a sentient mind. And all sentient minds have the, the potential because Buddha-ness is already there. The potential is to simply witness it, to, to engage with it. Hmm? So we can take the first part where he talks about Devadatta and in fact the progenitor of the, of the title, the, the uh, progenitor, the, um, the character that n named for or named by this chapter. But it's, it's really about the difference between Shoju and Shakabuku. If you're a Nichiren doctrine follower, can you not see that in this oddly written chapter that for one we already know David Dada was a not a good guy but Shakyamuni does nothing but he preys upon him so he's only validating the good qualities the potential of David Dada. and then in one fell swoop with the Naga daughter right demonstrate that there's something far beyond that arhat and the personage of Shariputra, who is the foremost arhat. So, kind of hidden in that is, yeah, Devadatta has been leading people to arhat for a long time. Shariputra would be his star pupil in this context. And then, in one one example with the Dragon King's daughter, completely relegates that to a subordinate enlightenment. He's already talked about all this, but it's kind of synopsized and another element of shock to everyone in the assembly that Devadatta, that sneaky, mm, why is he here, is also given merits to attain enlightenment. Wow. This, uh, this Myoho Rengekyo, it transcends everything. So interesting style of writing. This one a little different than most of the other chapters, but the message is uh, unmistakable, right? And I would say that this chapter is a really good definition of Nietzsche's dividing line, if you will, between Shoju and Shakobuku. That now we live in an era that's full of deluded Devadatas that's full of deluded Shariputras. Whether it's through stubborn adherence to early teachings, and not even early teachings, but the inculcated mess of afterlife and reincarnation, that's just not Buddhism. And it just won't let up. People keep pushing it in there. And so to Nichiren and to the Lotus Sutra, it's time to slap that out of your mouth. Stop chewing on that. It's poison. This life, this life is the life of enlightenment. There is no other. So if you don't do it now, 
See ya. Wouldn't want to be ya. You didn't get anywhere. You just played in your own feces. Hmm? So, it's quite a direct statement. Maybe not as direct as the one I just made, but shakobuku, right? Now, I use shoju in a way, and I have in the past, and maybe it's inappropriate. But I've used shoju to mean skillful means. That in our era, that sometimes we need to be forceful and loud, and other times we need to be compassionate and helpful. But always with a mind toward buddhaness, not some fake nirvana, right? Not that shoju, just the shoju of taking people to complete enlightenment via stories and parables that will help people get their own insights on the way to Buddhahood, to Bodhisattva, enlightened Bodhisattva, right? And just leave behind that whole intermediate step because it's, it's now it's an obstacle. We don't want to pay lip service to that, right? Does that make sense? Okay. Chapter 13 is fortitude. And so Medicine King returns to talk about fortitude. And I look forward to getting into that chapter next with you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for your practice. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your support. All those links in the description, different links to free podcasts, free materials on threefoldlois.com. I continue to add to I've even added something. Oh, I don't know if I should announce this yet. I started working yesterday on my own translation of the Lotus Sutra. And um, I had mentioned, I put up a video a couple, few days ago about uh, having watch parties. Uh, something one of you emailed me about some time ago. And I thought about it and chanted about it. And I thought, that's a really good idea. Because we do like a sense of community. So if you have even just one friend that comes over... And maybe, uh, you know, the format of a meeting, you do gongo and then you take a break and then you watch one of the videos from this channel or listen to a podcast. And then you, at the end of that, can have a, a discussion session of your own research and thoughts and ideas. It's, it's very useful for your own insights, right? And uh, whether it's uh, one friend or several or that friend brings a guest could be could be a lot of fun. I caution you, uh, you know, as as Shakyamuni always does, um, you know, you're going you're going to invite questions, and so uh, don't get overwrought with doubt. Don't feel you have to answer every question. Say, oh well, uh, I need to research that a little bit. Maybe we can talk about that next time you come over. Well, I don't know if I will. Well, I hope that you do, and uh, I will study this regardless because you're helping me in my practice. So thank you for asking that question. I, I sense that I, there's a, a, a well-defined answer. I just can't come up with it right now. If you'll allow me the time to research it a little bit, I will speak from other authorities other than myself. And, and here's some resources for you to look into. You can answer your own questions. So please do that. It's because ultimately we all find our own insights and answers to all of these questions. It's, your practice, after all. You're not doing what I'm telling you to do. You're doing something for yourself. I just want to help you get there. You know, that kind of energy. 
Anyway, with all that said, um, patrons, thank you so much for your support. Uh, those who've bought ebooks or, or uh, print books, mandalas, the like, you really, really infuse support into this endeavor and keep us going, keep me going. Thank you so much. And uh, I will see you in the next one, okay? Take care of your health. Bye for now.